Welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hi, my name is Laura Cease, and I'm here with Thomas Gleason from the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Gleason is the Chief of the Division of Cardiac Surgery. He is a professor of cardiac surgery and an aortic surgeon and investigator here at the University of Pittsburgh. And I'm pleased to talk to him about the decision making between a total arch replacement and a hemi arch replacement in patients with aortic dissection. Thanks a lot, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here. This is an important topic that I think we all need to have a good handle on how to uh, make these decisions. For our first scenario, Dr. Gleason, you have a 45-year-old male who was transferred to your institution from an outside emergency department with a reported type A dissection. His initial presentation was acute chest pain and a syncopal episode. The CT angiogram demonstrated an intimal tear starting at zone 0A that extended into the arch, including the ostium of the anominate artery and the left common carotid artery to the bifurcation. And there is an obvious secondary tear in zone 3. On exam, the patient is hemiplegic on the right. A TEE shows a bicuspid aortic valve with mild aortic insufficiency and no evidence of stenosis. Could you discuss with us what um, your operative plan would be? Sure. This discussion is obviously germane to almost every cardiac surgical practice in, in, in worldwide. You're going to encounter this circumstance in, at some point in your career, but more, more than likely fairly routine for any academic practice that has a, uh, a, um, a aortic uh, service line. And so the, the discussion or the, the decision making uh, in a case like this uh, is really twofold. The primary decisions with respect to what the operative plan will be are predicated on both the d- disease and the extent of involvement at the level of the root vis-a-vis the amount of uh, valvular insufficiency, the amount of uh, the, the location of the primary tear w- with respect to the valve. In other words, is it is it in the root itself? Is it above the sinotubular junction? These all have implications on what the decisions for the root. We're going to not talk about that today. We're going to restrict the conversation to, to the arch itself. And, and in this case, with, under under this circumstance, the first and, and foremost for any of these patients is that the surgeon needs to examine the patient preoperatively prior to receiving any sedation so that a a good neuro exam at baseline is determined. And in this case, we're we're learning that the patient is hemiplegic on the right uh, and has involvement in both the anominate and left carotids with respect to dissection of these vessels. So this has immediate implication on what we would do uh, uh, with respect to the Artery construction. So, at the University of Pittsburgh, we have protocolized uh, management of aortic dissection to the extent of what our indications are for arch replacement and what extent for arch replacement. So, with respect to to total arch and the decision to do a total arch in any dissection patient, we have broken it down into four uh, indications, three of which are uh, nearly absolute, and one of which is more uh, relative. So the three 
indications that we would consider near absolute for, for total arch replacement are the presence of a primary or secondary tear in the arch between zone one and zone three. The second indication would be circumferential dissection of the entire arch. In other words, there's no point circumferentially within the arch where the dissection plane is opposing the adventitial layer of the aorta so that so that the entire uh, circumference of the mid, uh, particularly the mid and distal portions of the arch are, are circumferentially dissected. Third would be aneurysmal dilatation of the arch. And, and uh, I, without without uh, stating an absolute number, roughly, if, if, an, if an aortic arch is larger than 45 millimeters, we're going to tend to uh, replace the entire arch in the, in the context of dissection. And the fourth indication is, as in this case, carotid dissection in the presence of cerebral malperfusion. This, in our hands, is an indication for total arch replacement. So for the scenario we're, we're talking about, it, whereby the patient has a uh, dissection of both the innominate and the left carotid, and they note a secondary tear in, the, in zone three, we would be replacing both, both the innominate and left common carotid arteries, plus or minus replacement of the left subclavian, depending on the, lo the specific location of that uh, secondary tear. A any tear near the left subclavian ostium is going to mandate uh, left subclavian replacement as well. And so in most circumstances, like this one, we would replace all three uh, brachiocephalic uh, vessels. The next decision reflects what to do with the proximal descending aorta and in other words what is the contact what is the uh, the technique used for uh, distal aortic anastomosis and proximal descending treatment vis-a-vis -a -vis a, 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 an end-to-end -end anastomosis aortic to graft a, a traditional elephant trunk versus a frozen elephant trunk so for for the a circumstance where the the a dissection terminated in the arch in other words the, there was no dissection beyond the left subclavian artery that might that would be a circumstance we would consider simple end-to-end -end anastomosis uh, total arch with end-to-end -end anastomosis with any uh, distal involvement of of dissection beyond the left subclavian so dissection beyond in and beyond zone three those cases we would tend to pr to perform an elephant trunk either a frozen elephant trunk or a uh, conventional elephant trunk. And the distinction there would, would depend on the pathology more distal. So in the presence of a pseudocoarctation, for example, in the, in the proximal mid or, or distal descending aorta, whereby there's uh, marked compression of the true lumen by a pressurized false, that is a circumstance where we would, we would uh, use a frozen elephant trunk. Another example of uh, another circumstance where where we would use a frozen elephant trunk technique is when the tear itself there is either a primary or secondary tear in zone three or zone four. In those circumstances, we would want uh, a uh, stent graft to to cover the the uh, distal tear site, whether it's a uh, primary or secondary. Thank you so much. I was also wondering if you could talk a little bit about your cerebral protection strategies and your cooling plans for this patient. This is also an area that we have protocolized here at the University of Pittsburgh, such that d depending on the operation intended vis-a-vis -vis 
Hemi Arch, Total Arch, Frozen Elephant Truck, etc. We have standardized the, the, the cannulation and cerebral protection strategy. So for this case, where we're gonna, where, where the plan with the secondary tear in zone three is gonna be a total arch with a frozen elephant trunk with reconstruction and replacement of the anominate left carotid and left subclavian arteries. This patient, we would, we, the, uh, the default cannulation site is gonna be central. So th what that means is we're gonna cannulate the true lumen in the arch using a Seldinger technique where we gain access to the true lumen with, it, with an 18 gauge needle and then advance the guide wire under TE guidance, plus or minus epiaortic ultrasound. Typically we, we don't require uh, epiaortic ultrasound, but in the, in the circumstances where we cannot uh, definitively confirm we're in the true with, with, with transesophageal echocardiography, then we would add, we would add the use of epiaortic uh, ultrasound. Once the guide wire is proven to be in the true lumen, it's serially dilated up to, a, to either an 18 French or a 20 French femoral type uh, inflow cannula. That's positioned in the distal arch in the true lumen. And, and then we, we begin uh, perfusion, integrate perfusion via that cannula. Venous cannulation is, is typical, either a dual stage in the right atrium plus or minus the use of a superior vena cable catheter if retrograde cerebral perfusion uh, is planned, and we'll elaborate on that in a moment. So for a total arch, we generally are going to have a strategy of anti-grade cerebral perfusion, and we do this uh, routinely. Uh, the the uh, cadence of cerebral protection in, in a total arch in the context of dissection in our hands is such that we, we limit uh, the period of circulatory arrest to really only be reflective of perfusion to the lower body. What I mean by that is we, we, we plan carotid reconstruction in such a way that we have, we have no period of, of brain ischemia for the entire uh, brachiocephalic reconstruction. In other words, we would, would, would do either the left or the right carotid reconstruction first while maintaining perfusion to the, to the contralateral carotid. After the after one carotid is has been reconstructed, that reconstructed carotid is immediately perfused, and then we we move to the second carotid, so that there is really no period of of uh, cerebral ischemia. There is short periods of unilateral uh, ischemia, reflective of the of the ipsilateral side during this during the uh, reconstruction of either the left or the right carotid. So in this circumstance, what we would generally uh, do is begin cooling the patient down to deep hypothermia. When the patient achieved a, te a, a, a core temperature below 28 degrees, we would plan reconstruction of one or the other carotid. Typically, we, we uh, would reconstruct either the innominate or the right carotid first, simply because of ease of exposure relative to the left. And this is done during the final period of, of cooling. Uh, understand that our cooling protocol is is set up such that we uh, stop cooling. In other words, our nadir uh, core temperature is the point at which we have achieved electrocerebral silence using a, a continuous EEG and somatosensory evoked potentials. 
uh, when the SSCPs and EEG signals have flattened for four minutes, that is indicative of, of uh, a quiescent brain, and that is the point at which we stop cooling. That temperature can vary depending on the age of the patient uh, and, de and degree of uh, arterial sclerosis in the brain, in, in other words, resistance patterns. That, that could vary between a temperature of uh, 22 degrees and, and 18 degrees. Typically, the te temperature uh, ranges between 20 and 21 degrees. That's when we would achieve electrocerebral science, and that when we would, that's when we would consider it safe to proceed with distal artery construction. So dur during the final uh, minutes prior to achieving electrocerebral silence, that is when we do the reconstruct the first carotid, typically starting at with the right, or in this case, the innominate artery. That's reconstructed with a branch graft. And, and then as soon as that uh, innominate arterial or right carotid arterial anastomosis is completed, we then de-air that, that vessel and the graft, and then that graft is, is cannulated with a second cannula arterial inflow cannula, and we begin perfusion of the right side of the brain, and then we would proceed with doing the left. We would complete the left carotid prior to a distal arch period of circulatory arrest so that both carotids are, are, have been reconstructed before we do our distal arch and left subclavian anastomoses. It's, it, it, immediately following reconstruction of the left carotid, we would then uh, de-air the left carotid system and then begin anticrate perfusion through it. At that point, uh, when we also have achieved electrocerebral silence, we would begin with the distal reconstruction. And typically, we would first uh, reconstruct the left subclavian artery. We would dissect it out at this point with a, with a decompressed and open arch. This, this allows for much better exposure of the left subclavian. We put a, a clamp on the distal subclavian in, in order to prevent, prevent back bleeding via uh, collateral circulation from the left carotid. And then we would transect the left subclavian and reconstruct it with a third branch from the branched graft. After that anastomosis is complete, we would then proceed to, to the distal arch anastomosis. And in this case, we would advance a pigtail catheter down the true lumen, down the descending thoracic aorta. We would, through that pigtail catheter, we would advance a guide wire. And, and over that guide wire, we would, we would deploy an anticrade delivery of a, st of a stent graft, typically ranging between 10 and 15 centimeters in length, depending on the pathology aimed at, at, uh, at treating. In other words, where is the distal tear site? Where is the extent of pseudocarctation? These would dictate the length of, of the frozen elephant trunk. More commonly, we would use a 10 centimeter, but in some cases, a 15 centimeter stent graft. That after deployment of the stent graft, we then take a, a, an arch graft and anastomose that to, the, to both the aorta and the stent graft, all as one anastomosis. Upon completion of that anastomosis, we would then cannulate the distal arch graft just proximal to where the uh, stent graft lies and then begin uh, perfusion of the lower body. We typically use a separated brachiocephalic graft and arch graft for this reconstruction, and and then while we're rewarming after perfusion has been reestablished, we will uh, sew the branched uh, graft to the arch graft uh, while maintaining perfusion through both uh, in an end to side fashion. 
and that would complete the arch reconstruction. That is our standard perfusion and arch replacement strategy for, for total arch in the context of, of dissection. Great, thank you so much. We're gonna switch gears and talk about a patient for our second scenario with a connective tissue disorder. So for the next scenario, Dr. Gleason, you have a 17-year-old Marfan's patient who presents with acute onset chest pain. The CTA demonstrates a DeBakey 2 dissection that originates from zone 0B. The root is dilated to 5.2 centimeters and the arch measures 4 centimeters. The aortic valve appears to be um, tricuspid on echo with moderate central AI. Could you talk us through what your approach would be for your operative strategy for a hemiarch or a total arch, and if you were to perform a hemiarch on this patient, what size criteria would push you to perform a total arch? Yeah, Laura, this is another good uh, case because it, it brings up a couple important uh, circumstances that, that, that you're going to see uh, in your career. And the, the first is, is, of course, the issue of the Marfan dissection. But the, the other is the, the issue of how to handle the, um, the, the extent of reconstruction in the context of a DeBakey II, which implies that the, that the uh, dissection itself terminates prior to uh, entering into the arch. So, that, so here you have two issues. What are we going to do with the proximal reconstruction vis-a-vis -vis the valve, and what are we going to do more distally in, in, uh, in the context of a Marfan uh, patient? So speaking about the arch first, so in light of the fact that this dissection terminates before the arch, this is a circumstance where, where as long as there was no evidence of uh, aneurysmal dilatation of the arch or, or proximal descending aorta, it would be our usual to, to stop and perform the reconstruction at, at the hemi-arch level. It brings up an interesting point if it's reasonable to do to simply replace the ascending aorta and not do a hemi-arch. And I would argue then that that is not an optimal strategy, particularly in the context of a Marfan patient, uh, because the quality of the aortic tissue is 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 uh, considerably more fragile than a normal aorta, and, and therefore the distal anastomosis is going to be facilitated from a technical standpoint better with, a, with an open arch anastomotic technique, in other words, a hemi-arch. So for this circumstance, I would plan on a similar cannulation strategy as we had described. In other words, cannulate the, the centrally in the proximal arch, gaining access to the true lumen, cool the patient. This time we would uh, plan on retrograde cerebral perfusion, which is our standard cerebral protection strategy in the context of a hemi-arch reconstruction. And that would mean, uh, in addition to central cannulation and right atrial cannulation, we would cannulate the superior vena cava. We typically use a 26 French angled soft cannula with the tip positioned in the right internal jugular vein. We would begin uh, cooling the patient, and upon achieving electrocerebral silence, as I described in the last question, we would then, at that point, begin a period of circulatory rest utilizing retrograde cerebral perfusion. The retrograde cerebral perfusion protocol we use is such that we keep we maintain a right internal jugular venous pressure between 26 and 30 millimeters of mercury. That generally translates to a flow of between 250 and 300 cc's of blood per minute. This, this is predicated on the fact that the cannula has been snared 
such that the, the preventing flow through down into the right atrium or into the uh, azagous vein. So we're trying to limit retrograde perfusion to the anominate, uh, the bilateral anominate veins. The and then that that would facilitate open arch and and in this case hemi arch reconstruction. With respect to the valve, this the, sounds like this valve uh, is functioning well, has a at least functioning well prior to the point of dissection, has normal morphology and no evidence of, of disease, this would be a, a perfect circumstance for valve sparing root replacement, and that would be our typical protocol in a patient with Marfan syndrome who has a dilated root, as, as this patient does. Uh, and so the plan would be for modified, uh, re- modified reimplantation, uh, meaning uh, replacement of all three sinus segments and, and reimplantation of the valve into a, a replaced root. Thank you so much. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you follow your patient's um, status post to hemiarch with postoperative imaging. Yes, so we follow the patients with the hemiarch and total arch the same. And that it, it, we're talking about in the context of, of post type A dissection repair. And in, in that circumstance, we see the patients, all patients will get a follow up scan in their primary hospital stay. So following reconstruction, at some point prior to discharge, we will get a, uh, which, which we now consider the baseline study post-reconstruction. And we use that to, to judge subsequent images. The, the second image is obtained uh, at one month. And depending on the scan at one month and the extent of residual dissection and the presence of any pathologic concerns. In other words, if there's a, a segments of the, of the residual dissection that are aneurysmal, if there's evidence of, of uh, ongoing pseudocorrectation, if there's evidence of uh, new secondary tears distally, all of these may alter our subsequent surveillance uh, plan. But our standard uh, protocol is for one-month scan and then following one-month scan, if there's no evidence of dilatation uh, or ongoing malperfusion, we would plan for a six-month follow-up CT angiogram. And then at, at, after that point, we would then see them at 12 months, assuming no change. And then from that point on, they are seen annually unless a change. If there is a change, so let's say at the one-month point, there is evidence of dilatation of the descending aorta, we would then see the patient back three months later for follow-up scanning. And, and we would continue with a Q3 month imaging timing predicated on the, the demonstration of ongoing dilatation. In other words, if there's, if there's stability, we would then tend to uh, relax the, the period of time between scans. But if there's ongoing dilatation, we would stick to uh, uh, every three months. Once the patient has d- dilated to the point of of concern that would indicate further reconstruction, in other words, second second intervention, that would potentially alter surveillance as well. Uh, and and um, determination of secondary intervention would be generally based on maximal orthogonal dimension or rapid expansion. And either of those circumstances may dictate a secondary intervention. Great, thank you.
So for our third scenario, you have a 55-year-old marathon runner who presents with acute onset chest pain. His troponin is elevated to 6 and the ACS team is called. The patient is taken to the cath lab and during the attempted catheterization, a type A dissection is noted. The patient is then brought to pre-op holding and plans are made for a CTA prior to his operation with you. While awaiting transport to the CT scanner, he acutely becomes plethoric and unresponsive. CPR is initiated and he has begun to be transported to the operating room. His neurological exam was normal prior to the event in pre-op holding. What are your next steps? So Laura, this is a difficult circumstance that we, we absolutely uh, see. And it's, it's, there's no question that the patient needs to go immediately to the OR as, is, as you described. Uh, but you're, you're uh, caught a little off guard here because we don't have cross-sectional imaging to help dictate what the reconstruction plan is going to be. But there's no question that the patient has, it sounds as if the patient has ruptured and is now tamponaded, which led to his plethora and subsequent uh, decompensation. And so the, the immediate need is to uh, decompress his uh, uh, apparent uh, cardiac tamponade and in doing and also reestablish adequate perfusion to to his true lumen. So this is a circumstance where the 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 immediate need is for expedient sternotomy, decompression of the pericardium and uh, cannulation. In this circumstance as we described above uh, previously is one where central cannulation can be extremely effective. And, and expeditious, and and this is a, again what I would advocate for this circumstance, whereby immediate sternotomy, uh, pericardiotomy, and then uh, central cannulation. Typically, these patients rupture in a in, uh, in a fairly defined place that can be that can usually be controlled with just digital compression. And the most common site of rupture being uh, somewhere along the AP window. Uh, on the uh, lesser curve of the ascending aorta. Uh, and a simply a single finger with digital compression can typically control the site that's bleeding. And uh, you, you'll, you will note almost uniformly immediate return of vital signs with uh, pericardiotomy and decompression of that tamponade. So this is a circumstance where we would do that just as I described. And then once we have established integrate perfusion to the true lumen via central cannulation, then we would immediately start to cool the patient, but also begin an interrogation to determine what extent of reconstruction we would plan. And the, the, uh, an intraoperative transesophageal echo can help with this. What we're looking for specifically is evidence of a primary or secondary tear, either in or, or uh, beyond the arch. Those may help determine whether a hemi or total arch is indicated. But in the end, you, you may not get adequate imaging data to help determine what is the extent of reconstruction. And consequently, what we would, what would, what we would do here at Pitt would be set up for both a hemi arch reconstruction strategy and, an, and a, a total arch reconstruction strategy, and then make the decision after the arch is opened. So what, by that I mean we would set the patient up with the retrograde cerebral perfusion capability and for antegrade cerebral perfusion capability. The decision to, on how to, to utilize antegrade cerebral perfusion largely depends on what we're going to do with each of the two carotids.
if there is evidence of, of uh, inominate arterial or carotid arterial, left carotid arterial dissection, we would plan in a circumstance like this to, re to replace those vessels. And once they're replaced, as I described in the first scenario, then we can uh, begin isolated perfusion of either the right or left side of the brain. If there was not evidence of uh, anominate arterial or left carotid dissection, then we would proceed with, with, with uh, hemi-arch replacement, and then once the arch was opened, we would confirm whether there was the presence of any distal, t distal uh, arch uh, aortic tear. And if so, we would amend the reconstruction plan uh, based on that new evidence. Perfect, thank you. So for our fourth and final scenario, you have a 62-year-old female who has an acute type B dissection who's undergoing a T-VAR for refractory pain. The tear is in the descending aorta in zone three, and her descending aorta measures 5.2 centimeters. Her arch measures 3.9 centimeters. After deployment of the stent graft, a retrograde aortic dissection is noted on the aortogram, and it extends into zone zero B. What would be your next steps? So, the next step would be immediate proximal arterial reconstruction in a manner similar to the, the three pre previous scenarios. So in this case, we've already deployed a stent graft. So first and foremost, we want to confirm that that's in good position. And we also want to confirm whether or not the distal extent of that stent graft is at, is at the optimal location. In other words, if our intent all along was to to uh, stent graft it down to the celiac artery, which would be the usual circumstance, at least at the University of Pittsburgh for, for TVAR in the context of a type B dissection. And so we would uh, want to plan for uh, completion of that descending reconstruction. It, doesn't, it wouldn't necessarily have to happen immediately in the context of a newly identified retrograde aortic dissection, and in such that we may want to, to proceed with proximal reconstruction first and then complete the distal reconstruction after the proximal reconstruction is complete. So the, the order of reconstruction would be as follows. The, uh, I'm assuming that the patient had been prepped and draped to allow for a sternotomy, which, we which would be our protocol for any TVAR in the context of a type B. So the patient is already prepared for sternotomy if, if necessary. And so we would move to immediate sternotomy and then uh, a central cannulation. Uh, in, in this case, cannulation is made a little easier in that you already have a, a, a distal or proximal descending thoracic aortic stent graft in place, so we would use a central uh, cannulation strategy with uh, Seldinger technique, getting a guide wire into that a stent graft. And once in the stent graft, we would, we would uh, serially dilate up uh, p positioning a perfusion catheter in the stent graft itself. And then we would proceed with, uh, with uh, hemi-arch or total arch. And that, again, we would use the same algorithm that I've described in the, in the previous three scenarios to, de to decide whether or not, what, what, excuse me, to decide what extent reconstruction would be necessary. However, in the context of an indwelling, freshly placed stent graft, we would almost uniformly plan for total arch replacement. The only, the only nuance being what to do for the three brachiocephalic branches. Uh, in most cases, we would, t we would uh, plan for replacement of each of those vessels, at least the proximal segments. 
but in, in a circumstance where there was not involvement of uh, of the ostia of any of the three brachiocephalics in this circumstance of retrograde uh, type A dissection, we may just do uh, total arch replacement using an island technique for the brachiocephalic reconstruction. Although I would would say that I uh, I cannot recall how long it's been since that circumstance uh, was true. In most cases that we now do total arch replacement, we do individual reconstruction of each of the three brachiocephalics. Well, that concludes our discussion for today. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Dr. Gleason. Thank you, Laura.